Well, let me ask. I'm sure you have. Have you ever had moments, maybe whole days, when you feel that you just can't win? I mean, no matter what you do or what you don't do, whatever decision you make or you don't make, you're going to rankle someone. Somebody's not going to be happy. I mean, whatever action you take, somebody's going to criticize you. You just, you just can't win. Well, the Apostle Paul would have understood that feeling. He, Paul couldn't please everyone, not inside the church, particularly not outside the church. And his problem was the very calling that he had received, which was to proclaim a gospel that actually was misunderstood by everyone, even those within the church, the church that was founded on the gospel. For Paul, for his life, the gospel proved to be a troublesome gospel. That's what has him in the fix that he is in now. Now, two Sundays ago, we had left Paul giving a farewell talk to the elders of Ephesus. And he had noted then to those elders that he's, he's not going to be seeing them again. And he even says this, The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And he's talking about awaiting him in Jerusalem as he's traveling along. So he next goes to Tyre. And there, the, the believers there say, we're told that through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is telling them. They were telling Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. He gets closer. He gets to Caesarea. There a prophet prophesies to him. Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man. And he's, he's got his hands bound about what will happen in Jerusalem. They're going to own, he had taken Paul's belt, and he says they're going to bind the owner of this belt. But Paul, even though he's received these warnings, he does not turn away. And he gives a reason why he doesn't turn away. He says the same spirit who's been delivering these warnings about what's going to happen in Jerusalem Well, it's the same Holy Spirit who he says, this is the spirit that constrains or compels him to actually go to Jerusalem. I mean, he just can't seem to win here. He's got the Holy Spirit saying, you've got to go to Jerusalem. He's got people who have been moved by the Holy Spirit saying, you better watch out if you go to Jerusalem. Well, he finally arrives. Uh, He had his, his whole hope was to get there in time for the Pentecost. Apparently, he makes it in time. That's the feast. Uh, the Jews from all around the, the Mediterranean gather together. That was the same feast, probably about 25 years earlier, than which the Holy Spirit had come down, baptized the apostles. Peter gives that great sermon. 3,000 people were baptized that day and the church begins. Well, it's that same feast. Paul is now there. And what Paul does first is he goes to the the church in Jerusalem. We're told specifically that he speaks to James. Apparently, it was like the head of the church and to the elders. So he goes to the church leaders. He gives a report. 
It's well received. And then they make this curious request of him. Apparently, reports have been coming in about Paul, and this is from other believers, okay, that he was encouraging Jewish believers to, to essentially to abandon their Jewish heritage. They don't need to be following the law of Moses anymore. And, you know, and, and, you know, and they know that Paul wouldn't be doing that. And, and to counteract that kind of reports, they, got a, they came up with a great idea. They want Paul to join three other men who were fulfilling their vows. They were called Nazarite vows. And they wanted Paul to, to go with them to the temple. In fact, he was even going to pay all the expenses and take them and make the sacrifices necessary. Well, Paul agrees. But while he's there on the temple court grounds, he is spotted by Jews who have also come from for Pentecost, who have also been in Asia Minor. And they had seen Paul earlier in the sitting, and with them was one of his Gentile converts, whom they evidently had recognized. And they've kind of put two and two together, and they falsely accuse him of bringing this Gentile into the court of the temple that's reserved only for the Jews. Indeed, it was a pain of death for a Gentile to go into that court. So, similar to the Jewish believers in the Jerusalem church, they are accusing Paul of preaching against following the law of Moses. Now, this public slander, it leads to, public, to, to mob violence. They begin to beat him. They're trying to kill him. He's only saved by Roman soldiers who's up in a tower there, right there by the temple, who come and rescue him. They literally have to carry him up the stairs back into that uh, tower. And that's when Paul says, wait a moment. Give me a chance to talk to the crowd. And that's what our text is about today. I invite you to turn with me to Acts 22. And we're going to be looking at the speech that he gives to this crowd that wanted to kill him. This is Acts 22, 1 through 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So what Paul is starting out doing, he's presenting his credentials. He is not some unknown kook who just kind of appeared on the scene. He grew up in Jerusalem. He was taught by the great teacher of that day, Gamaliel. 
he, no one had better credentials than he of being a strict law-abiding Jew. As he would write later to the Philippians in chapter 3, 5, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee. No one kept the law more strictly. No one was more passionate for the law of Moses than he. And by the way, the high priest, the Sanhedrin, they have to testify to this. They have to testify that I was their point man for persecuting, he calls it this way, the church. Indeed, he so zealously acted on their orders, he even went out of Jerusalem. He was heading to Damascus to find the believers there and bring them back to punish them. Okay. And this is a good beginning. He's got their attention. He's given them his credentials. And the crowd is listening. Let's pick it back up in verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. So Paul presents the original Damascus Road experience. Now this, the means, we've got to understand this, the means by which he turned, as he's giving an account from his persecuting zeal to be actually becoming a member of the way, this is very critical for his particular hearers to know. It's very important for them to be able to accept the change that took place in him. So Paul is saying, look, that he was not converted by, by clever argument or any kind of tactics used against him, but that he had received a vision from Jesus. Now, later on, Paul would write to the Corinthians, and he noted then, that for Jews to believe that a teacher and that teachings are particularly from God, they need a sign, miraculous sign. Well, Paul is presenting the miraculous sign of heaven that he had received. Now, the crowd is intrigued. They're still quiet. They're still listening to him. Let's pick back up in verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? 
Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now again, Paul is using just the right terms, the right phrases. He refers to Ananias as a devout man according to the law. He is well spoken of by all the Jews there in Damascus. So what Paul is presenting here is that here he is, Paul, a faithful Jew, is visited by another faithful Jew. And, and listen, far from abandoning his Jewish faith, Paul receives a commission from whom? The God of our fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who he's receiving his commission from. And indeed, he is to be all the more zealous in being a witness for the one whom the law of Moses points to. And to whom? The righteous one. Now, where does that term come from? Well, it comes from Isaiah 53. That's the chapter about the suffering servant. He is the righteous one who shall bear the iniquities of his people. And so this this reference to Jesus as the righteous one, as the Messiah, it had to strike some kind of chord with the crowd. I mean, even if they had not become followers, likely, probably what had happened is they knew friends who had. You know, James had told Paul that many thousands among the Jews had become believers. By the way, the, the other person who used this term, the righteous one, was Peter, when he gave that sermon at Pentecost. So, who Paul follows and what he proclaims was tolerated to a degree in Jerusalem. I mean, there had been an initial wave of persecution, but that was more than two decades ago. And that probably had died out, decades, had died out many years before So maybe a growing number in the crowd are thinking, well, maybe we've been a little bit too hasty here. Okay. Now Paul continues. Now what he's done, he's given his credentials. He's kind of given his testimony, what happened to him. He's given his his calling, why he had this calling that he does. Now he's going to explain a little bit more about what this mission is to be. In verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem, and he's talking about now, right after the Damascus experience, and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him, that is Jesus, saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Gentiles. That's where he made his mistake. Paul, you, you had to say that word Gentiles. I mean, up till now, his speech was perfect. I mean, he's hitting 
all the right buttons. He's speaking the language of people literally, speaking Hebrew, and he's speaking figuratively. He's using all the word associations that they would understand and be in, in tune with. And then he uses that despised word, Gentiles. All the accusations flash back in their minds. I mean, is Paul not owning up to the charge that he befriends Gentiles? That he probably is bringing them into the temple court? Kill the beast. That's what they think Paul is. And the story will be continued next week. But meanwhile, what lessons can we learn from this speech that Paul gave other than saying, don't say the word Gentile? Well, it boils down to, again, of having a gospel that can be a troublesome gospel. And primarily one of the ways, the way that it's very troublesome here for Paul is about who the gospel is for. Now, Paul had been identified correctly as the Jew who had been spreading the news that the Jewish Messiah came to save non-Jews as well. And not only that, it is true. He has been telling Gentiles that they do not need the law of Moses. In fact, it gets even worse. He claims that adhering to the law of Moses in order to please God is dangerous. Paul is guilty of the charge. And now here is Paul standing in the holiest spot of all the earth as identified by that law of Moses. Is he not by his very presence adding insult to injury to the most sacred beliefs of his own people? You know, really, I I think if Paul had ended his testimony with how he came to accept Jesus as the Messiah, and and maybe it's just some kind of general statement of going out and and telling people, he doesn't have to say particularly who, uh, about the Messiah, you know, he probably could have gotten off. But Paul cannot stop telling the whole story. The salvation of the Messiah is for everyone. It's for all peoples. Now, that's a great lesson. Now, how could such a gospel then be considered troublesome for us? And that's the question we have to look at for ourselves. Well, two ways, I think. For one thing, as much as we like to proclaim, and we do proclaim, don't we, that the gospel is for anyone. If we look deeply and examine ourselves we might have to admit we have preferences for who receives it and who doesn't. You know, I know you get mail like I do from missionary agencies, and they're presenting people who need to hear the gospel. They're, they're hungry. Usually they're poor. You know, they're, they're lost. They, they have that picture of being kind of lost. They, they, they're yearning for a savior. They pull at our heartstrings. The people who never are presented for our sympathy are just the outright wicked, murderers, rapists, oppressors. And indeed, when we think of such person, our thoughts go to what? Judgment. That's what they deserve. 
not mercy. And indeed, we hope they get what is coming to them. I mean, let me be honest. I mean, I'm just thinking of myself. Doesn't the very thought of a wicked man, I mean a really wicked man, making a deathbed profession of faith seem unjust? Particularly when I think of the kind of people that our own pastor serves. He's upright, upstanding Men and women fighting for our country. And if one of them dies on the battlefield, but they don't know Jesus, they've never turned to him, they die condemned because they never turned to Jesus. You see, this is where the gospel takes us. And it tests our understanding of God's grace. We might speak of being saved by grace, but deep down, We have to ask, do we leave room for who we think is deserving and not deserving? I mean, grace and mercy, by definition, have nothing to do with deserving. It has nothing to do with justice. And so, neither those who, by our standards, lead good lives... And those who lead wicked, immoral lives have greater or decreased standing before God. No one comes to God the Father except through Jesus Christ the Son. It has nothing to do with their good works. No one gets to a closer position to be saved by Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul wrote later on to the Romans, All have sinned. And he has in mind both the very wicked that he wrote of in Romans 1 and then the very good folks in Romans 2 when he says, All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And what the gospel does is it tests how much we really believe them. So that's one way that we can apply this. The gospel... It can be troublesome and about who it says can be or will be saved and who may not be saved. There's another way that it can be troublesome for us, and that is in what it does not require. The gospel does not require that those who repent and who turn to Jesus Christ for their salvation be like us. It does not provide a a culture. And by culture, I mean clothing, what you listen to, just the type of, that kind of culture. It doesn't provide that kind of culture that must be adapted. That was the hardest adjustment for the early church to make. They, They just couldn't struggle with this thing about, what do you mean we don't need the law of Moses anymore? And so it's a question for us to have to examine our own hearts. Are we guilty of judging the quality of another Christian's life? Maybe even questioning if they have true faith according to how much they look and act like us. Do we judge other Christians? These could be tough questions. According to their political views. According to their appearance. Maybe according to their taste in music. Now, I do. 
I have much, I am much more likely to identify as a Christian brother the man with a neatly combed hair than one who has dreadlocks. I mean, dreadlocks. I mean, I'm looking on a website and this minister of a large church and he's got dreadlocks and I just, just have a hard time with that. Am I really to accept yeah, I want to say, I'm, I'm like most of you here, okay? Am I really to accept that a Democrat can be as committed a follower of Jesus as a Republican? Okay. That maybe one cannot determine a person's faith, maybe, according to the news channel that they watch. Okay. And that the measure that I determine, which is basically the same measure that we all use for determining what it is to be a good American. It's not necessarily the same measure for determining one's devotion to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, you know, when I was working on this, my my first way of application actually went out to people out there, and I thought, no, no. We have to look at ourselves, and that's what I'm doing here. Now, see, Paul got into trouble, not only outside the church, but within the church, because he truly understood that in the gospel, there is no Jew nor Greek. There is no Republican or Democrat. There's no American or foreigner. There's no traditional worship, worshiper or contemporary worshiper, that there is no Christian identification other than the one of belonging to Jesus Christ. And if we follow his example of holding to the pure gospel of salvation by grace alone, as we sang about in Marvelous Grace, we're going to find ourselves at times being ostracized, not only by those outside the church, but by those inside the church as well. That kind of trouble is part of the cost of being a disciple that is focused on Christ and on Christ alone. So I think a great lesson again, like I said, is understanding the, how troublesome the gospel can be because of who it's for and what it does not require Believing the gospel, following that gospel, proclaiming it can be troublesome. And so all the more we ought to give thanks to God for someone like the Apostle Paul, who traveled steadfastly to Jerusalem, knowing what trouble lay ahead of him. And he did so because he knew the value of the gospel that he professed and proclaimed. But we know of another man, don't we, who earlier had traveled steadfastly to Jerusalem. Not to proclaim the gospel, but to make the gospel happen. And he too knew of that persecution that awaited him. Indeed, he knew of the death that awaited him. And it was a death that had to take place if he were to save men and women from every tribe, every nation, from every walk of life. If he were to save persons who were of the finest in character and those who had sunk to the lowest of character. Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus Messiah came 
He did come to his own people, the Jews. And he came to everyone else. And he came not to be accepted by them, but actually to be killed by them. So that he might save his enemies. There was one enemy that was so obsessed by his hatred of Jesus and his followers that he personally led the efforts to arrest and to kill Jesus' followers. He would identify himself later years as this, as a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. This is how Paul described himself, as one who received not due judgment, but undue mercy. And many more would be saved by Jesus' work on the cross, not because they gave up their cultural identity, but because they found their own common identity of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus can and will save anyone, including any of us here. And if there is anyone here who thinks that you are unworthy, perhaps you might even think yourself unsavable. Well, let me tell you, first of all, you are unworthy. So are all of us. But you cannot be unsavable. Perhaps you know the story. You probably read it in high school. You know Charles Dickens' story, The Tale of Two Cities. Remember, there's a character, Sidney Carton, who, who gives his life to save another. Well, earlier in that story, Carton had confessed uh, to, uh, to a woman for whom he, he was ultimately going to make this great sacrifice. He had confessed the unredeemability of his nature. She was pleading to him to change, to turn for the better. And he says, I shall never be better than I am. I shall think lower and be worse. You know, she had kindled in him a desire. He calls it a fire to be better. But he also honestly notes this. He says, it's a fire, however, inseparable in its nature from myself. Quickening nothing. Lighting nothing doing no service, idling, burning away. That was his honest assessment of himself. Now, Carton will go and do a great work, a great sacrifice, but not because of kindling within himself some kind of a noble fire. But he says why. It was by remembering a promise that as a boy he heard that was read at his father's funeral. It was this promise. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever leaveth and believeth in me shall never die. It was those words that he would repeat to himself again and again, all the way up to the moment of laying down his head upon the guillotine. And it was based on that promise that he then could say that it is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. Unredeemable. Unsavable. Jesus promises for everyone, for this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who looks on the Son, everyone who looks and believes. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Who left his home in glory, who came down upon this earth that killed him. He knowingly did this. That he might save us. Each of us who have been here in this sanctuary, those of us who have called upon Jesus, and we can attest, we did not deserve it. We know our own hearts. We know that even now we were in wonder that you would still save us. Father, I pray for anyone here who may still wonder, are they redeemable? Are they savable? May they so hear that same promise that whoever, everyone, anyone, calls upon the Lord Jesus will be saved and it will be well for our souls. Christ's name, amen.